Hey guys, it's Albert. We got a great show coming for you this week. We'll kick things off with the Week 10 Takeaways. Got a great guest coming for you to talk about Kyler Murray and quarterbacking across the NFL. Fabs is in with his DraftKings DFS bargains and fades and his fantasy picks for Week 11. And as always, we get to all of your questions in the six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. Week 10 is in the books. Week 11 is here. It's the Albert Breer Show. We got a great show coming for you this week. We got an awesome guest in to talk about quarterback play across the NFL, where it is, where it's going. We'll get a lot of talk about the Buffalo, Arizona game in there as well. We've got our DraftKings segment with Michael Fabiano giving you all his DFS and fantasy picks for week 11. We get to all of your questions in the six pack, but let's get to the takeaways first like we always do. My first takeaway for week 10, of course, it's got to go back to that Arizona Buffalo finish. And really, I want to kind of look here at, at what it means and kind of what it signified to me watching what happened there on that field. And I think for all of these teams, you know, your Atlantas, your Houstons, potentially your Jacksonvilles, your Detroits that are going to be going into 2021, looking at where they want to go, where they want to take things. Look at the risk that the Arizona Cardinals took in 2019 and 2020. Look at the amount of things that they did that maybe were a little outside the box, that maybe didn't reflect well on the decision makers in that organization itself and how those, how those sorts of things have paid off. I'll start with the head coach hire, right? Like, so they get rid of Steve Wilkes after year one. Was that fair? Maybe not. But they realized that it was just at that point, like not working, right? And they had looked at the idea, maybe we bring in a new offensive coordinator. They kicked around certain ideas. And you know what? I think for the general manager, Steve Kime, he went back to this thought he had in his head before Bruce Arians was gone. I'd love to get a young offensive mind in here. When Sean McVay, who was their target, that was the Arizona Cardinals' target to eventually succeed, um, to, to eventually succeed Bruce Arians, when 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 that ship sailed with Sean McVay taking the uh, Rams' job the year before Bruce Arians retired, um, you know they sort of reset things and they wind up going and they hire Steve Wilkes um, as their head coach in 2018. I think with the 2018 season sort of reinforced for Kime and for Bill, uh, Michael Bidwell and the people in that organization was like we were right the first time. We, we really should have followed our instinct here. And to go and find their version of Sean McVay, they, they, they thought outside the box. They brought in a coach who they really liked, who Steve Kime knew from being a road scout for all these years, but wasn't going to win the press conference. I, like was going to ruffle some feathers and like was completely like completely an outside the box, almost an unprecedented hire and bringing in a college coach who had been fired. They had conviction and they went out and they not only reached into the college ranks again, but reached into the college ranks and got a coach who had been fired at that level, who had just been fired at that level on Cliff Kingsbury because they saw something there and that has paid off. The second piece of it, going and getting Kyler Murray and Basically, Steve Kime, for the second time that offseason, had to admit I was wrong. I, I, I got this one wrong, and we have to correct it. And that was coming Again, they were just one year separated at that point from having traded up, not just taking Josh Rosen 10th overall, traded up to take Josh Rosen 10th overall. So after admitting they were wrong with Steve Wilkes, after Steve Kime admitting that he was wrong with Steve Wilkes after one year and going and doing something unconventional – he did it again, right? Like so, he goes and he says, "You know what? We're going to take every. We're go, we're going to look at the idea of taking Kyler Murray 
over Nick Bosa, over Quinn and Williams with the first overall pick. We've got the coach who can make this work. And he, for the second time in the span of three or four months, had to admit, I got a major decision wrong. And so now you got Cliff and Kyler together. They have a good first year. How do you take it to the next level? Well, the DeAndre Hopkins thing is interesting, and not just because you know there are the whispers of the off-field stuff in Houston and how is he managing injuries there, how is he practicing, who is he hanging around. There are all those questions out there, and one of the reasons why he didn't have that hot a trade market. You know, The other piece of this, though, the Cardinals already had Larry Fitzgerald. They already had Christian Kirk, a young player that they thought a lot of, and they had drafted three receivers um, in the 2019 draft. So you're talking about five players at that position that you've made an investment in. So it wasn't like the most pressing need they had on the roster, and yet Steve Kime sees the opportunity and he goes and strikes. And so to me, like you look at the three elements of that, right? Cliff Kingsbury, the guy who calls the play. Kyler Murray, the guy who throws the ball. DeAndre Hopkins, the one who catches the ball. And to me, it re- like represents three tough decisions, three bold decisions, and three decisions that the Cardinals made with conviction. And so I think the owners, Michael Bidwell, the GM, Steve Kime, deserve a lot of credit for admitting their mistakes, for acting with conviction, and that all paid off on Sunday night. And now we get to see how it looks against the Seattle team that slumped a little bit. And, you know, now we're seeing like sort of some of the growing pains as they as Seattle evolves the offense and Russell Wilson's, you know, turned the ball over a few times. Like so now we get to see if Seattle can bounce back, if Arizona should ca- can capitalize on the momentum. Maybe the most attractive uh, Thursday night matchup we've had all year. Takeaway number two, uh, the Saints have a great opportunity here. And I'm not saying you're hoping that Drew Brees would go through what he's going through. No one hopes that. And if the Saints had their druthers, they would have a healthy Drew Brees for 16 games this year and going into the playoffs would have a Drew Brees who had a clear mind, who was ready to go, who had a 16-game season to build off of. That's not happening now. And, you know, Brees may wind up missing a month. And so where does this leave the Saints? Well, for one, that's a team that hasn't needed to win the way that they won, say, in 2009 or in 2011 anymore. They can win with defense now. They can win with creativity on offense. They can win with Alvin Kamara in the running game. They can win different ways. They can win with Drew Brees throwing for 150 yards. And so I don't think that this injury sinks them. I think they can kind of tread water and keep playing the way that they've been playing. And they've got a golden opportunity now to take a look at their position going forward with Taysom Hill versus Jameis Winston. And up until now, that wasn't really an even fight. Let me explain this to you, okay? If you wanted to, if you want to go inside the way the Saints have been practicing over the last, you know, ten weeks, really the reason why Jameis was the backup, and I can tell you that definitively, Jameis was internally considered the backup quarterback. Taysom Hill was the third quarterback. The reason why isn't because Jameis necessarily beat Taysom Hill out. It was because the way they have to manage their roster. Taysom Hill has to prepare every week to play a receiver. He has to play every week to play a wildcat cat quarterback type role. He has to prepare every week to play some running back. He has to prepare every week to play on special teams. So he isn't preparing every week with the focus, I've got to be ready if they put me in as a full-time quarterback. That was Jameis Winston's job, right? So Jameis Winston gets in the game. I still think, like, and this is just me reading tea leaves, I still think that like on a week-to-week basis, Sean Payton believes Jameis Winston is going to give them a better chance to win um, playing quarterback full-time than Taysom Hill would. 
and we'll see about that. But up until now, it wasn't really a fair fight. What they get over the next month is a fair fight. They get to see whether or not Jameis Winston can be their future, whether or not Taysom Hill can be their future. They're going to get a very real look at what that, at, at, at where they're at at that position. In a similar way to like the, the Denver Broncos got a look at Brock Osweiler the year Peyton Manning got banged up and the Broncos wound up going on to win the Super Bowl. And so I think you're going to get arrested, Drew Brees, as a result of this. I would hold him out as long as it takes for him to feel healthy and good again and ready to go. And, you know, the upshot of all of this, again, is I think you get a look into your future at the quarterback position. Takeaway number three, the New England Patriots were incredibly impressive in what they did to the Baltimore Ravens on Sunday night. And I'll tell you what, my number one thing, like just watching that game, how it unfolded, the way the Patriots played that game, like they've got an identity on offense now, and and I don't think they should stray from it anymore. Um, You know, I think we saw that identity in week one against the Dolphins. In week two, uh, they had to stray from it a little bit, but for the most part, they played that way until they fell behind against Seattle. And I think this is who they have to be. They're run to pass ratio as far as called plays in that game was 39 to 18 39 runs to 18 passes uh that's what you have to be with cam newton and you know i've talked to some people who've worked with cam over the years who actually got to study what he was doing early in the year in new england and the biggest thing i got coming back from people who have worked with him in the past was this is a guy who needs a running game and he can be a very proficient quarterback for you but you need to give him that basis that running game and he can be a very big part of that running game as well. But there's a certain way that you're best playing where you're going to get the most out of Cam Newton. And I think over time now, the Patriots have toyed with some things. I think they, for a short period there, maybe reverted back to, try, like, let's try to be what we've always been. And that didn't really work. I, I think now it feels at least to me like Josh McDaniels has gotten the the, 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 the idea and is that, okay, like now – we have an idea of what we are, and this is who we're going to be going forward. And there's a long-term benefit here for the Patriots, too. The long-term benefit for the Patriots here is that they'll finally modernize their offense. They've had so much trouble working young skill players in over the years, and one of the main reasons why, say, like a Damian Harris or a Shane Vereen or a James White had to sit in year one, a main reason why they've had trouble developing young receivers, a main reason why... You know, you saw huge jumps from, you know, Aaron Hernandez and, and Rob Gronkowski from year one to year two at the tight end position. That offense is very difficult to assimilate into for a young player, and it has been. And so I think to accommodate Tom Brady to get the most out of Tom Brady, they've been playing that way forever. I don't think you can play that way anymore, the way that players are developed in high school and college. And so I think what this is going to do, it's going to give them an opportunity now to modernize the offense a little bit where it'll be more compatible to young players. I think a perfect example of how that realization can come to life is going on in Miami right now, where Brian Flores got down there. He brought Chad O'Shea with him. Chad O'Shea had been the receivers coach in New England for a decade. He puts the New England offense in down in Miami in 2019. After one year, Brian Flores decides we can't do things this way. We need to do something that's going to be more conducive to young players. So they bring in Chan Gailey, who's running a much simpler system. And now look at the Dolphins. You got three guys in the offensive line um, as rookies who are playing. You have a rookie quarterback. You're able to get more out of your young players quicker. And so I think that that's the upshot of doing it, of simplifying things a little bit, is that you're going to, be a, you're going to become a program that's more conducive to young players playing early. Takeaway number four, 
I really think the Pittsburgh Steelers at nine and zero have another gear. I know that sounds crazy, um, and I, I like look like they haven't been. The record is perfect, but they haven't been perfect. They've hit some speed bumps across, like over time, and you, and you look at it like you know the Cowboys game wasn't great for them. They almost blew the lead against the Titans. You know, I think their next gear here is the further development of the passing game. I think what we're seeing, what we've seen to this point, is how much more well-rounded they are now than they have been. Right. So, um, you know, the defense took forever to rebuild. The defense is rebuilt now around guys like T.J. Watt and Bud Dupree, and you know the older guys, Cam Hayward and Stephen Tuitt. Obviously, Minka Fitzpatrick's been a big part of shoring things up in the secondary. They can run the ball, and we know they can, we, we've known they can run the ball. And I think all of that was a benefit of having had to play without Ben last year, that they had to learn to play different ways. I think now, like the, the, the next gear for them, that other gear that I'm talking about for them, comes with the development of the young receivers where they can bring back the sort of passing game they had when it was Antonio Brown and Emmanuel Sanders and Mike Wallace and then eventually Martavius Bryant, more recently Juju Smith-Schuster. The three young receivers there, Juju Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, and Chase Claypool have all flashed major potential. I think for the first time against the Bengals, we started to see that potential with all three of those guys playing major roles. And I think that that's the next level for the Steelers now. That's where they can kind of find that next gear is with those three guys continuing to produce at a really high level. Finally, my fifth takeaway for Week 10, and this is going to be reaching back into the college ranks a little bit. Um, I think there are going to be two levels of quarterback pursuit um, when it comes to the 2021 draft. As things start to crystallize as the college season, as wobbly as it's been, starts you know like starts to stumble towards that finish line. Uh, the first level is the obvious one. All right, Trevor Lawrence is worth tank- tanking for. Trevor Lawrence is somebody who can stabilize your franchise. Uh, I, like the way I look at it, and this is not based on my own like scouting report. Like I'm not a scout. Like this is based on the people I talk to who are paid to look at this stuff. You know, Trevor Lawrence is in the John Elway, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck category, a true once in a decade type of prospect. So I, I like I think he's worth like some funky roster management down the stretch if you're the New York Jets. I think Justin Fields can be close to that. Like I don't think he, I, I don't know that he's got a real chance of like passing Trevor Lawrence. But if you look at the way that Fields has played this year, who he is, and this is regardless of where he went to school, even though um, you know I root for him every Saturday, like I, he is, like I think the way we're going to be talking about these guys, Trevor Lawrence, generational, and I think when we when, when we get to the spring and we're talking about Justin Fields, we're going to be saying, yeah, maybe he's not Lawrence, but this is a guy who is in like the category where. He's better than a lot of the guys that could be go that that, that they could go number one overall. Like I think he's a better prospect than Kyler Murray was coming out. Better prospect than Baker Mayfield was coming out. Better prospect than Jared Goff was coming out if he keeps playing the way that he's played through three games this year. So that'll be your first level, right? Your your Lawrence Fields level. And for a while there, I sort of thought like Lance would be Trey Lance would be close. He didn't play great in the one game that he played this year, and he doesn't have a ton of on field experience. So. I think with the other, with three other guys, sort of, I think, kind of ascending up the, you know, ascending in the minds of, of NFL evaluators, I think you're going to have this second level of quarterback pursuit with the young guys where you don't maybe need to be that bad to get one. And like that to me is a result of, I think, some emerging depth in this year's quarterback class. The three guys I'm talking about BYU's Zach Wilson. 
Florida's Kyle Trask, and Alabama's Mac Jones. Now, um, I believe Wilson's a junior, so he'd need to come out. Trask is a fifth-year senior. He's going to be playing in the Senior Bowl in Alabama. He's actually already accepted an invite, so we know he's coming out. Mac Jones, I believe, still has at least a year of eligibility left, too, if you count the COVID rules, um, so he would need to declare. Um, but I think that if, 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 all, if all three of those guys wind up in the draft pool, now the effect that you have maybe is Lance coming back to that pack and Lance competing to be the first of those four taken, where I think before coming into the year, a lot of us looked at it and said there are three guys and there's a big drop-off. Now you could have six guys maybe going in the top 50 or so picks if those guys declare. And so Lance gets pulled back, where now Lance is competing against those other three guys. And I, I, like, I think if you're a team like, you know, say the Colts, say the Steelers, um, say the Patriots that may be drafting outside of the top 10. Now there's real hope that you could wind up getting a, a, a potential franchise quarterback without having to make some massive move up the board, which is a great development for teams like that. All right. Speaking of quarterbacks, our guest, our special guest is going to give us some great insight on quarterback play across the NFL in 2020 right after this. All right, we're going to bring back now uh, one of my favorite guests from last year. We haven't had him on in a while, but um, he brings fantastic insight. And, and Dan, I think I'd sort of call you a rising star still, even though you're at ESPN now, but a rising star in the media world over the last couple of years. And he did play, uh, and I'm counting him, 13 years in the NFL. Is that right? Is yeah. that last year? Yep. Okay. Okay, 13 years in the NFL for the Lions, the Texans, the Colts, the Bucks, the Lions again. And then the Rams, he's ESPN's Dan Orlovsky. Dan, appreciate you coming back. It's good to be back with you, but I'm excited to talk. Okay, so like, let's start here. And I, I think that this is sort of what everybody's been talking about all week. Um, the play that Kyler made, where the Cardinals are. Um, you know, but it's interesting. I, I, I during the over the last couple of days, I actually you know sort of went back and looked at some of the decisions that the Cardinals have made the last few years. And I, like I'd say that they were probably unpopular decisions at the time pulling the plug on Steve Wilkes, going with Cliff Kingsbury, pulling the plug on Josh Rosen, going with um, going with Kyler Murray. And so, like, I, I just, like, I sort of wonder, like, you know, when, when you watched Kyler coming out and when you watch what Cliff has become as a coach, um, what kind of strikes you about the way they're playing right now and how it might be a little different than what we've seen in the NFL before? Yeah, I mean, you know, Albert, I'll be honest with you. I remember um, when that whole conversation was going on, it was that, okay, the Cardinals are going to hire Cliff Kingsbury. And I was on Get Up the day that it was announced that Kyler said, I'm going to go play football. And I remember being on live television and going to Greeny, going, Kyler Murray's going to go number one. <laughs> and Greeny was like, there's no way, right? Like, they just took Josh Rosen. I'm saying, I said, Kyler Murray is 100% going to go the number one pick. And, uh, you know, watching the maturation of Kyler, I still see like the, you know, the kind of very rare talent, both, you know, with his thought process and how quickly he can get through things and think about things, his spatial feel, like his feel for space and just color of what's around him is absolutely fantastic. How he moves faster than anybody and also like just lower than anybody. Like if you just watch him play and it's not, a, a tie to his height like he just moves at a faster but lower pace 
uh, on the football field. And, and you still see that, but just his awareness of how important it is to, um, you know, we call it managing the football game. You know, I, I call it operating the offense, like how he's grown with such um, ability to operate his offense and really good be, start to grow in situational football. You know, uh, if you watch just that Bills game, there's a couple plays where he realizes, you know, this plays that we lost this play. The Cardinals offense has lost this play. And he's doing this within a second, right? We've yep. lost this play. And the best thing for me to do is either slide, get down, throw the ball away, run and get a yard instead of trying to become a superhero. And just his his situational awareness growth has, has really developed over the past, I want to say like 10 games, even going back to last year. And then, you know, for Cliff, I think Cliff has had real good moments of, of growth. You know, you could go back to the fourth quarter and those kind of three straight passes and go, and, you know, I, I see what you're – like I see him wanting to be aggressive in that moment, but also there's times to, to you got to be the person to take the foot off the gas and milk the clock a little bit more in the NFL. And so, but I also see like his, his managing the clock better. Um, the way that he's sometimes, you know, just going, okay, we're going to play smash mouth football here a little bit with our offensive line. That's different than college. So, I think they both have just grown into being NFL pros, so to speak, with the, the most important aspects. You know, I want to—I I, want to actually backtrack, and I do want to ask you more about Cliff. But like, you mentioned the whole thing about like you know cutting his losses, right, and knowing when a play like just isn't there. Like, wouldn't that be huge for a guy who runs like Kyler does? I would think because that would probably naturally mean you're putting yourself at risk less, which would take the whole idea that guys like that can't hold up because they take too many hits. It wouldn't take it out of the equation, but it might mitigate it a little bit. Is that fair? Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, and I mean, and it's also, there's, it's the, that's kind of two parts to the sword, so to speak. Like the hits that you take at quarterback, they all, they, they kind of add up over time, right? If you look at, okay, this guy took 87 hits last year, like that's going to add up over time, but it also, it only takes one. So you're kind of, dulling both edges that, uh, edges of that sharp point. You know, you're taking less hits when you're doing that, but you're also – anytime you can not expose yourself to that one shot is right. really important as well. And so both parts of that are coming into play. And also, Albert, like I always try to get folks to understand this, like how important it is to never lose sight that football is just so connected. And, you know, when he – there's, I, I actually calculated it from this past Sunday. He had 91 yards of hidden yardage where he takes a seven-yard loss and turns it into a two-yard gain. What only shows up as a two-yard gain, but it's really nine yards of offense. I mean, because you're, no, you're not in second and seven and 17 or third and 14. You know, you're in second and eight or third and seven. Like, those are hidden yards of offense that he – you know, that's why it's it's such a connected aspect for him and their offense that he does um, with his kind of situational decision making. Yeah, and that's managing the game, too. Right. Like that's yep, that's, a, yep. that's a that's a huge part of managing the game. If you're the quarterback is keeping yourself and your team on schedule and keeping yourself out of bad situations. So that, that's another yeah. way to do it. And so is he like like, do you think like he like. I, you know, you want to say like he's sort of changing the paradigm a little bit in how you evaluate quarterbacks. Um, when you looked at him coming out, did you have the same he's too small reaction that a lot of people did? Or 
no. did uh, or 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 no. did you see it as this guy's just so special that I like I'm not even going to worry about his height. Yeah, I did not. I did not care about his height. I used to argue with Marcus Spears all the time about it. Like I, yeah. I just, I said it does not matter because do you have you know traits that make up for that? I guess you want to call it deficiency, right? Like, right. are you? Here's the thing, Albert. Like because of the way. Um, style of football that's coming to the NFL and also the rules, it literally comes down to, can you think and can you throw? And he can think really well. Like if you watched his tape in college, you realized he had this quick twitchy mind that saw things really well and understood things really well. And his brain was as fast as his body. And then could he throw? I mean, his arm is both explosive, but also, you know, he's got great touch and the ability to kind of make all of the right throws when the moments kind of lend themselves. Now, what I asked him to play in an offense, you know, it, it all had to tie up with a, a style that Cliff was going to bring. Would I put him in an offense that was, you know, going to be demanding like a Tampa Bay where it is sit back in the pocket and, you know, we're going to go six, seven step drops and hang in there and try to see the ball downfield a ton? No, I, I would go, ah, you know what, probably not going to be super successful in that. But the style of offense that he's in, I had no reservations. Well, that's the question. That was the next question I was going to ask you because you you told the story about sitting there with Greeny on the desk in New York, and you said you knew. Like, why in your mind was Kyler such a unique fit for Cliff? Why did that just? I mean, aside, and we all heard the stories, right? Like that he's known him since he was fifteen, and there was the soundbite out there him saying if he's first, if he's there, take him first overall, all of that. Besides just like the stuff that we knew, like what was out there like on tape that you looked at maybe and you could match up like, okay, like this is how Texas Tech played and this is how Kyler Murray looked at Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, a big part of Texas Tech's offense was, you know, they want to go fast. They want to play with tempo. It's really hard to play with tempo with a quarterback that's not athletic. That's just that's just the truth because sometimes in tempo because at the pace that you're going to play – you know, you're going to be wrong as an offense with your play call because, you know, defense might play in, in the guessing game and your RPO might be the wrong call. And you're going to have to have a quarterback that can be, you know, kind of thinking on his feet, that can play more reactive than, you know, a, a thought-out guy. You know, Kyler's not a guy that you get to line of scrimmage and you want to give a ton of information to and, you know, be thought out with a lot of his pre-snap stuff. You want, you want to allow him to play reactionary and instinctual. That's the style of offense that, you know, Cliff ran at Texas Tech. You've got to have quarterback run as a part of your offense. Like, you've got to have a quarterback that can operate that way, but also, like, can get in and out of stuff. You know, like, Kyler's so good at getting in and out of that run game stuff. Can he be athletic and throw on the move? You know, that's a huge part of that offense. And so you had to have this, you know, this physically, just physically, you had to have this very rare style of quarterback. And Kyler just happened to be the guy that was there this that year, and it worked out perfectly. But I don't know if there's been a lot of guys that have come out like Kyler. Like, Kyler's different than Lamar. You know, Kyler is, it, it operates at a completely different pace than Lamar does. So even if it was Lamar the year before, you know, do I think it would have worked? Yes, but he's not nearly as ball distributive as Kyler. Um, Kyler's much more apt to – throw the ball within the RPO game on the move than, than Lamar is. 
Lamar's probably more of a powerful runner, like straight line, but Kyler's side to side a little bit better. So it just fit perfectly. So Kyler's like more of a point guard and maybe Lamar's a swing man, I guess, like in a certain way. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Kyler's, you know, Kyler's probably a lot more like a, a Chris Paul and, and Lamar's a lot more like a Russell Westbrook. Okay. How about Cliff then? Like, cause there was a lot of doubt with him, right? Like, and like, I, I think it was, it's fair questions, right? Like the guy was fired at, at Texas tech. It's very rare. I mean, we don't see yeah. guys come from college to the NFL that much period, but a guy who got fired at the college level, especially at a school like Texas tech, you don't see that, um, that sort of guy just immediately getting an NFL job. Um, so I like, I mean, first of all, it took a pair for Steve Kime and <laughs> Michael Bidwell to make that hire. Um, what do you see from Cliff? Like, has he surprised you? Um, I, I think he's he's surprised me with his ability to adjust to the NFL feel as quickly as he ha- as he has. Now, again, he, he came at the right time when we are as a league so much more accepting of the NFL or the college style. You know, I'd say this: like when it when it comes to his time at Texas Tech, um, you know, <clears throat> I can only think of two coaches in the Big Twelve. Um, that have been highly thought of because of their defensive football. You know, like that's Gary Patterson and, and um, Matt Campbell at mm-hmm. Iowa State. And Gary and Matt Campbell's even having a tough time with defensive football in the Big 12. So, you know, Cliff was fired because of the defense. And it's just a tough conference to play defense in. But, you know, how quickly he's understood, you know, if you watch them, they're not a crazy pace anymore. They change their pace up, and sometimes they play fast, and sometimes they play somewhat fast, and sometimes they go warp speed, and sometimes they slow it down. So his understanding of how important that is, and um, <clears throat> you can't hang your, your defense out to dry, and and it, just because you run 85 plays doesn't mean you've done them well. And so I think he's really focused on like how well they can run their plays, not how many they can run. And that's you know- different than – that's different than him in college. That's really interesting. Cause I remember a conversation I had with Chip Kelly about all of this. And he, you know, I remember like him saying to me, is that the biggest difference between college and the NFL is that every play means more. And he's like, that's because every game is decided by seven points or less in college. You know, you might have eight games where it's not even competitive. And so you yep. can sort of do what you want. He's like, I had yep. to learn that in, in, in the NFL situational football, and every call, it's absolutely everything, you know? And I thought that was sort yeah, of an interesting exactly. point that maybe Cliff's adjusting to that pretty well. No, I totally think he is. I totally think he's understood, you know, again, it's it's more um, it's more how well you do it, not how much you do it. All right. I want to jump around a little bit before we let you go. And, like, the first thing I wanted to mention, like, and, and so I'm going to give you kind of the results of a poll I did. I, I sent out texts last week to a whole bunch of, um, of front office people got 31 ballots, quote unquote, back um, on awards. And I thought it was interesting, you know, as, as well as Russell Wilson's played, and we've seen, you know, like obviously Kyler's played well. Alvin Kamara has been really good. Uh, Patrick Mahomes was a runaway winner of the MVP. And not only was he runaway winner of the MVP, some of the people that didn't vote for him for MVP voted for him as offensive player of the year. And I always think it's interesting because these are the guys who are getting paid to watch this, paid to assess it. And that was so overwhelming that Mahomes was the MVP um, was interesting to me. And like, I wonder if you'd agree with this, Dan. It just sort of tells me that people within the league regard him as the best player in the sport and it may not even be close. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, 
I have felt that way since the first time I saw him take a third down snap in his first start ever, week 17, on the road against Denver. Um, watching that play, I just remember sitting there going, this dude is going to be super, super special. And now I, we all know it's been a great situation that he's been thrust into, but he's taken that situation and made it uh, a juggernaut and a well on their way to being a dynasty. And so, yeah, I think Patrick's the best player in, in football. I think he's the best player we've ever seen at that position. Um, ever. And ever. I think he's the best player we've ever seen at the position. Will he become the most accomplished? You know, fingers crossed. Um, but he's the best He's the best player. He's the most talented player we've ever seen at that position. What separates him? Well, he could, he could physically do things that you should not be able to do. You know, like, obviously, we know his arm – is incredibly strong and he could throw it from any different body position. Like when he makes some of these throws, we take them for granted. Now he made a throw against Denver on the run to the, his left three weeks ago on third and 13 to Miko Hardman. Um, he was going, <clears throat> I'm going to try to do compass here. Give me a second. Like he was going to his left, but not at like a, at a, um, if you draw a circle and draw it in half, he wasn't going on like that equator line. He was going at a, a negative 45 degree angle and he threw the ball on a line going to his left sideways against man coverage on a corner route. And it hasn't been shown on television. No one's talked about it. And we've become so numb to these throws from him um, that it's remarkable. I'd say the two things that the chiefs obviously did not miss on, but probably a lot of people in the scouting world did he has got three things. He's got incredible leadership skills. You could tell that by what he did with his contract. You could tell that by some of those NFL film clips that we see with him on the sidelines. You could tell that by the Sammy Watkins taking less money um, just to stay type of people. Um, <clears throat> I think he's got outstanding competitiveness. You know, I, I did not know. And when I'm talking competitiveness, I'm talking like, you know, Kobe Bryant type of mindset where – you, you know, everybody on your path, you're just trying to embarrass. And I think Patrick's wired like that. And then his brain is, is, is got like this brain that is very smart, but untapped as well. You know, he's, he's just starting to understand nuance and you can see that showing up on tape with how he's using his eyes, his shoulder turn, his feet. Um, <clears throat> that's why he's the best player we've ever seen at that spot. You know, I got a great story that'll kind of, I think it ties all three of those together, but you know, I'd heard when he was a rookie, he'd want to get extra work in. Cause as you know, like, like backups, like once the season starts, right? Like you don't get a lot of real yep. work, right? You're mostly running the scout team. So he wanted to get some work in and, you know, he's backing up Alex Smith at the time and, um, you know, like just sort of trying to develop in the shadows and a story a coach there told me was that he never took one of the receivers who was actually playing. So he never even asked like a Tyreek Hill or, you know, I guess at the time it would have been like a Chris Connolly. He never asked those guys to come with him. It was always the backups, the special teamers, or the practice squad guys. And the yeah. coach explained to me, he said, the reason why is because he understood the team concept. No one had to tell him. He understood that this was still Alex's team and he didn't want to cause any sort of problem. And so like, I sort of like was listening to you go through that and it's like, 
leadership check <laughs> competitiveness he's getting the extra work in check yeah. like, it's like like to me like that story kind of i don't know like when i heard that story it's kind of like oh my god like he already gets it he understands what it's going to take to be a quarterback he understands what he's going to need because he's already giving it to somebody else yeah and you know what like i don't know if you've ever heard me say this you know but these these guys like this the like patrick are rare because you've got to have the ability to be two people at one time. Like Patrick's got that very rare quality that he knows he's the guy. Like he knows he's the absolute superstar quarterback, you know, of the Kansas City Chiefs face of the NFL. He knows unequivocally that's who he is. But you also have the ability to be a guy as well, where you can just fit in, like, and make sure that your teammates understand that you believe you're not better than them. And – that you, you are just one of 53, and it's got to be a real thing to you. And the only guy that I was ever around um, that, that came close to doing that was Matthew Stafford. You know, Matthew had that ability to kind of be the guy and a guy at the same time. But Patrick's got that quality to him where he can be both at once. Yeah, and I want to get to another guy who I think is in that category too, who at least was. Like Tom Brady early in his career I know always had that quality about him. Um He's obviously in a different stratosphere now. Six championships, yeah. forty-three years old. Um, what have you noticed watching him this year? Like, do you do, do you notice any sort of slip in his play? Um, what like what's your observation of where he's at at forty-three years old? Yeah, simply put, when he's kept clean, when his pocket is good and he's protected, he's as good throwing the ball as anybody in the NFL. He's as accurate. His arms as good. Um, he's as on time and playing within rhythm and deadly and surgical when it's clean pocket as anyone in the NFL. Now, yes, when he's, you know, pressured, it's always been his case, but it's even more so now because of the age. Um, but I would say this, like if Tampa Bay's offensive line plays the way that they have for most of this season, um, and they start to use their tight ends more, <clears throat> which I think is huge for their offense. I think they should focus on the tight ends, not the wide receivers. But if they do that, Tom will pick apart anybody they play. Right. And like, so it's like the Saints' ability then to get to him with four, which has always sort of been the key with Brady, right? But the Saints' yep. ability to get to him with Cam Jordan and Trey Hendrickson and, and, and Marcus Davenport, like that's really the key, right? Like, is that you can, that you're, if you're able to do that, then you got a chance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the key, I guess, you know, starting point with any quarterback, but even more so with Tom, because, you know, then you have more eyes on him and people in coverage against those really good weapons. You know, that game was so weird to watch, to be honest with you, um, Albert, just because I feel like the Saints might be the, the, the Bucks kryptonite, the only team in the NFC that can actually, you know, do that. But I think that the, the Bucks are starting to morph into a team that, you know, looks a lot different than the one we saw. At least I hope they are uh, in that game. And so you know, I just – I think that the Saints are one of the rare animals. The only other team in the NFC that might be able to do that is Chicago. They're not going to meet again. So uh, I just – I don't see anybody left in the NFC that can even remotely, you know, get close to Tom Brady the way that the Saints are able to. Okay. Well, let's turn it to the Saints then. So – a, do you feel like Breeze has lost much? Um, and I know that that's obviously been a big topic for a while now, for over a year now. Um, and B, what would you do if you were them right now with Jameis and, and Taysom Hill? And, um, you know, like I, I, 
one of the things that I heard was that one of the reasons why they turned to Jameis and one of the reasons why Jameis has actually been on paper, their backup all year, is because Taysom's time is sort of stretched thin in other areas with everything that he's got to do on offense and special teams. Um, so, A, like, like what do you see from Breeze thus far? And assuming he can get back, we get to see it again. And then, B, what would you do as far as managing Jameis and Taysom the rest of the year or the, re- the rest of the time that Breeze is out? Yeah, I, I think Breeze has looked basically the same as he has for the past couple of years. <clears throat> I mean, their offense has been, you know, the past couple of years, it's, it's transitioned to into this efficient – Make sure the ball gets out of your hands. Um, we are going to dink and dunk our way against teams, and Sean's been great at it, and Drew's so efficient and, uh, you know, accurate with the football. And, you know, especially if he's going to play against the zone team, he'll just continue to manipulate defenders. So Drew, Drew's been fine. I never thought that Drew was going to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, can can he still do it? I said this about Drew in the, that offense this year. At some point, they're going to have to find a way to be explosive. And how do they do that and who do they do that with? That was going to be the biggest question because Drew's arm is not explosive enough anymore to create some of those 25, 30-yard chunk throws that you kind of need in the NFL to win. <clears throat> what would I do? It's a, I think this is way more fascinating than it's probably going to get talked about because we know that Sean's one of the bright, bright offensive minds in the NFL. And, you know, like – Let's assume, let's play the game that he's got to, he's got to go a month without Drew Brees. And why, why would you not start the game with Taysom Hill at quarterback? You know, like, why would you not yeah. get this package of 20 plays that you, no one's going to be ready for it, you know, and you could have a different package to start every one of the next three or four games and start the game with this unique package where Taysom's at quarterback and you could have a little bit of the, the Ravens built in there and a little bit of the Cardinals built in there and a little bit of the Buffalo Bills in there and say, all right, we've got – this is our – we're going to try and jump on teams with this creative offense and then maybe Jameis becomes the guy to operate our offense and, you know, allow us to play from a, a position of comfort because, you know, the, the caveat with is if you go all in with Taysom – you have to ask yourself, can Michael Thomas be as effective with Taysom as he would be with Jameis, a traditional quarterback? Right. And can Alvin Kamara be as effective, you know, in that same role as well? And so I just think I sat, you know, over the last day I've sat back and go, you know what? Like, why would you not try to come out and, and with this very unique package, jump on teams and see if you can build yourself leads early in games? Have you ever been in a platoon? Because I know it's like it's super rare at quarterback, right? Have you ever been yeah. in a platoon? I have not. No, I've I've never I've never been I've I've never think, been the not the starter, not the backup. Do you think you'd hate it? I would absolutely hate it. You know, I <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I would. I, I think most quarterbacks do. You know, most quarterbacks are egos. Most quarterbacks right. are very territorial. We all, you know, when I walk on the field, like that's my huddle. I don't want anyone else talking in my huddle. Those are my boys. So. I would struggle with that. You know, it's what's best for the team. I get all that. Um, and I and I wish I could think like that and be honest, but I don't know if I would. But that's something you'd have to manage then if you're Sean Payton, right? Like if you were going to do that, like you'd have to manage that to some degree and say like, listen, like we need both of you. Like you'd have to sell them yeah. on it, right? Yeah, well, I think you'd have to sell Jameis on it more than Taysom. You know, first of all, Taysom, he's, he, he's getting paid a ton of money. Um, right. And he's been in kind of the in and out role anyway, um, where Jameis – 
you kind of sold Jameis, right? Like, hey, take a little bit less money. This is a great spot for you. And now Jameis is going, man, I, I'm, I'm ter- I feel terrible for Drew, but this is what I came here for. And so I'm sure Jameis wants to be the guy to take every snap. Do you think there's hope for Jameis? Like that he can be what people thought he was going to be coming out of Florida State? Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, if I would say this, if, he, if he's not going to do it over the next month, he's never going to do it. You know, with the offensive line they have and the play caller they have and the run game they have and the people around them they have. So, you know, his big thing is, and I'd say this, that if Jameis is the guy, like he's just got to have a singular focus. Don't be the reason we lose. You know, like just – be focused on I'm not going to be the reason our football team loses games because they're good enough where if he just has that belief or that thought process, he's talented enough. The plays will come. He'll make them all that stuff. But don't try to be the person. Don't try to be Teddy Bridgewater and don't try to be, you know, the next starting quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. Okay. Three quick ones and we'll get you out of here. And I wrote these ones down. I just thought they were interesting questions. Um, Number one, a quarterback in the NFL who's not getting enough credit right now. Derek Carr. Okay. How come? Um, I just think that Derek Carr has become this quarterback that we've we've you know kind of written off because he got he had that you know that really good year and a half stretch and then he got paid and the expectations went to well you should be the you should be quarterbacking a team that's really good and into the playoff hunt every year, but then the talent fell off around him. It was, it was poor. And then if you watch him play this year, um, it's the NFL's most efficient offense. Um, it's the NFL's best third down offense. He goes the right place with the football a lot. I don't want to sit here and say more than anybody in the NFL, but my goodness, he goes to the right place with the football 99 out of a hundred snaps. So, you know, that's, He's at six and three, and, and they've played a brutally tough schedule. And so he's the quarterback that we aren't talking about enough with how well he's playing, where he's got his team positioned, and, um, you know, kind of how he – I mean, being great on third down is really, really hard. He's been great on third down this year. Okay, number two, and this can be an OC or a head coach, an offensive coach that you're really impressed with. Joe Brady. Uh, okay. I think what Joe Brady has done in Carolina – you know, I, I, I've just started to get on this Joe Brady train, watching him last year at LSU and go, man, that's awesome. But we all know it's different, right? Like we know it's a different animal. And then the way that he's gotten that offense to play well, Teddy Bridgewater looks awesome. They've done a ton of it without McCaffrey. Um, I, it feels like he understands, you know, how the important stuff of football nowadays. you got to create space for your players. He does that. you got to create matchups for your players. He does that. You have to use pre-snap motion. He does that. Um, give it, give, give a ton of clarity to your quarterback. He's done that. So I've been super impressed with Joe Brady, uh, Brian Dable. I think Brian Dable is going to get a head coaching job. The way he coaches and calls plays for Josh Allen, it's just spectacular. Um, uh, and I've had a couple of them. Uh, uh, Arthur Smith in Tennessee, mm-hmm. I think, has been outstanding. Um, I mean, Kyle's been amazing, you know, obviously yeah. as a head coach, but I think those are the three that jump off the screen for me. Okay. Last one. I'll put you on the spot here. Tua, Burrow, Herbert. Who are you taking long-term? Joe Burrow, Tua, Herbert in that order. Um, I think Joe Burrow has this very rare ability to make every play work. The only guys that I've ever seen do that, um, the way he does are Aaron and Russell, just makes every play work. 
Like sometimes the play, sometimes the play, the defense wins, and it's not a good play call. He just makes it work. Um, and then Tua, from what I've seen so far, looks like the player at Bama. Stupid fast brain, lightning quick release, sudden in the pocket. Um, and then Herbert's been incredible. I think Herbert's going to be an absolute superstar in the NFL because he's the perfect blend of fundamentally really sound freak athlete and rocket arm has become an aggressive quarterback. Um, that's, that's a good match in, in football nowadays. So it sounds like you don't think this is a good quarterback class. This is a great quarterback class. I think this so is going to be an outstandingly great quarterback class. Okay, awesome, awesome. All right, I appreciate all the time. He's Dan Ar- Dan Orlovsky of ESPN. Dan, we're going to have to have you back. This was great. Appreciate you coming out. Anytime, bud. Thanks, bud. All right, thanks to Orlovsky. That was great uh, going through all the quarterbacks. And we're going to get kicked off here with our DraftKings segment uh, with our own Michael Fabiano. I'm sticking with the theme of quarterbacks, Fabs. And um, I, I think where I want to go this week is sort of where you think fantasy players should go with the Saints quarterback situation. Because this one to me is fascinating, right? Like you're talking about an offense that has all kinds of talent. Offensive line's really good. Uh, the skill position players from Mike Thomas to Emmanuel Sanders to Traquan Smith to Jared Cook to Alvin Kamara. That's all really good. So it at least looks on paper like whoever's stepping into this situation is stepping into a good situation, whether it's Jameis or Taysom Hill. So to kick things off uh, this week, what do you do about this situation if you're a fantasy player and those two guys are out there? So Sean Payton is not helping us because he's (laughs) not naming a starter. I would assume it's Jameis, but in 2020, who the heck knows, right? I will say this. If you are on the ESPN platform, they have Taysom Hill listed as a tight end and a quarterback. So go get him. Like, even if he doesn't start, he's going to be in the offense and tight end is awful this season. So I've picked him up because what happens if we're all surprised and and Peyton says they're going with Taysom Hill as the starter and he's your tight end. I mean, like that's <laughs> bananas, right? I would assume it's Jameis. And if it is Jameis, then he's going to be a top 12 quarterback rest of the season. Okay. He was the QB five last year. He had 30 picks, right? Maybe the LASIK helped. I don't know. Maybe he'll throw the ball to the right team a little bit more often this season. Time will tell, right? But he's got ridiculously good weapons, just like he did in Tampa Bay, maybe even a little bit better, uh, you know, with Mike Thomas. Although I don't know what's going on with Thomas. He has been a massive disappointment. Alvin Kamara, uh, Emmanuel Sanders, Jared Cook, as you mentioned. And the schedule is really good for Winston. I don't know how long he'll be the quarterback. I don't know when Breeze is coming back. I'm not sure anybody does, but he's got Atlanta this week, right? Then you've got Denver. Then you got Atlanta again. I mean, their defense is terrible. Then you're at Philadelphia. That's a tough one. Potential shootout in Kansas City uh, against Kansas City. And then you got the Vikings in fantasy Super Bowl week. I mean, that's a really good schedule. So Jameis, and I get it. He drives you crazy. He drove me crazy last year. He's got to be owned across the board. And honestly, if you're in one of these ESPN leagues where Taysom Hill's a tight end, pick him up. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You How does that work, by the way? Like. I- Will they will they reclassify him if he starts at quarterback? Like uh, they no, were probably he's listed go. as a quarterback too. So there's some platforms who actually allow a player to have two different positional uh, requirements. So right. So Taysom, I guess, has played enough snaps at tight end. I'm not sure how ESPN does it, but 
he's listed as a tight end and a quarterback on their platform. So he's obviously played enough at the tight end position, whether it's this season or last, whatever it is, where he's eligible. Okay. So again, I would be going after Jameis, but if you're in an ESPN league and we're giving him a lot of free pub right here, but (laughs) he's a tight end. I mean, that's, that's crazy. So again, the matchups are good. I'd go with Jameis. I think he's a top 12 play this week against Atlanta. That could be a high scoring game. And I don't know that there's a drop off from anybody, right? I'm not saying Jameis Winston is as good as Drew Brees because clearly that's not the case, but Jameis has, has been very successful throwing the football in the past as, as recently as last year. So uh, if there is a drop off, I mean, it's very slight and Sean Payton's going to continue to run that offense uh, just like he would if Drew Brees were under center. Although if Winston is the guy, maybe they use a little bit more Taysom Hill in the yeah. offense, but we'll find out. Yeah, it should be fast. I'm like, you never want to see a guy go down the way that Breeze went down. Mm-hmm. That said, I'm excited to see what this actually looks like because we haven't really gotten the opportunity to. It's like we haven't gotten the opportunity to see what that offense might look like with a little bit more of a vertical element, which right, I think right. has been sort of like. And Breeze brings a lot to the table, but I feel like over the last couple of years, that's sort of been taken away from them because mm-hmm. that's sort of the bargain you're making and playing an older Breeze. So yep. it should be fascinating just to see all of that. All right, we'll jump into our weekly uh, week, weekly segments here, Fabs. And of course, the first one is brought to you by DraftKings. That is your DFS picks and your DFS fades or bar. I'm sorry, your DFS bargains, and your DFS fades mm-hmm. for week 11. That's right. It's week 11. What you it got is. for us, Fabs? Uh, so I'll start off with Jameis at $5,900. That could there be a nice is. bargain. Uh, Tua Tungvaluwa. That, that, there's Fabs putting his money where his mouth is. That's right. Tua at 58 against the Broncos. Their defense is really bad against the pass. Alex Smith threw for almost 400 yards last week. He's got the Bengals this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Antonio Gibson's a good play at $5,800. Duke Johnson at 54. It's a volume play, and he's not that expensive. Rex Burkhead has been really good, folks, lately. He's getting more touches. He's playing a bunch of snaps. And if it's a negative game script for New England's running game, Burkhead's going to be the guy that they use because James White, I don't know what happened with James White. They're not using him anymore. Yeah. And, and, and so Burkhead at 4,600 is a good play. James I will, Crowder. I'll, I'll just Go ahead. add something that for you there. Like for all the listeners out there, I, I don't think that that's necessarily – like a coincidence. Like I, I just think that the Patriots have decided who they're going to be offensively right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And with a sort of running game that they feel like they need to have to support Cam Newton to play the way that they want to with Cam Newton. I just think Damian Harris and Rex Burkhead are a big, better fit. So yep. there's a little nugget for you. Yeah. On that. Great stuff, Albert. Great stuff. Uh, Jamison Crowder at wide receiver is at $6,100 against the chart. I like Amari Cooper this week. You know, I love the Cowboys. They stink, but so does Minnesota's pass defense. And he's mm-hmm. at 54. Uh, Jacoby Myers, no wide receiver in the NFL has a bigger target share in the last two weeks than Jacoby freaking wow. Myers. I mean, like, <laughs> that's insane. So he's at 49. Austin Hooper, assuming the weather's okay in Cleveland, because you never know, but he's a good play at 3,900. Same thing with Dallas Goddard in the same game. And then Logan Thomas uh, against the Bengals at $3,300. Some players I'm fading this week. Aaron Rodgers is hard to fade at seven grand. In Indianapolis, folks, that defense is good. That defense is good. So that's a little bit too rich for me. Uh, Ryan Tannehill in Baltimore at 61 is too rich for my blood. Carson Wentz, he's just not playing well right now, folks. And the Browns defense has been tough on quarterbacks at home. The weather's been a factor. 
but I would not spend my money on Wentz. Uh, Zeke Elliott at $6,500. I know the Vikings defense can be had, but Zeke's been bad four straight weeks, and I don't know if it's going to get better. James Robinson at $6,400 against the Steelers is a fade. Todd Gurley against the Saints. No team in the National Football League has given up fewer fantasy points to running backs on their home field than New Orleans. They're really tough in the bayou. Uh, Robbie Anderson is a fade if Teddy Bridgewater can't go. So keep tabs on Bridgewater's status. Uh, Hollywood Brown's been a disappointment. I know the matchup's good. I I don't trust him at $5,800. And then Jarvis Landry at 55 is a fade at tight end. Janu Smith, he's had a touchdown in two straight games. But two games ago, he didn't get targeted until the fourth quarter, only had two targets. And last week, he has a rushing touchdown. That's not going to happen again. Uh, Noah Fan against Miami. Their defense is really good. And then Mike Kosicki in that same game at $4,300. Also a fade for me. John Smith sort of killed me, to be honest with you. Like I, I drafted him with high hopes. Good thing I backstopped that with. Albert, he was good early in the season, and then it just yeah. stopped. Yeah, yeah. So it's weird. Like Titan's one of those positions where you want to have depth when it comes to fantasy, at least, just because like that just can be so inconsistent and game plan specific and all There's that different the, stuff. I I would argue that kickers have been more reliable than tight ends this year as a position. Well, there you have it. All right, so we'll jump into your. World famous Stardom Sidham column. As everybody who listens to the podcast knows, the original Stardom Sidham column has been penned by that man right there, Michael Fabiano. He's doing it for us at SI.com. So, Fabs, what do you have for us in that regard for week 11? Uh, at the quarterback position, you're starting Ben Roethlisberger. Who needs any stinking practice, right? Didn't practice <laughs> all last week and had nearly 30 fantasy points. Justin Herbert's a must-start every single week, and I only keep him on the list because a lot of people have – Herbert and Rodgers and Herbert and Lamar and Herbert and Mahomes because he was picked up off the waiver wire. So uh, right. that's why I keep throwing him out there. Matt Ryan, here's a crazy stat. In his career in games against New Orleans, in New Orleans, even numbered seasons, he's averaged over 21 fantasy points per game. It's great. Matt Ryan is so much better in even numbered seasons. I don't understand it. I just look at the trends, folks. I'm just letting you know. Cam Newton is a good play against Houston and Jameis against Atlanta, as I mentioned. At running back, DeAndre Swift, are the Lions stupid enough to not keep him in that featured role, Albert? I mean, maybe they are. I don't know. But he looked pretty good last week, and he's got the Panthers. Uh, he Antonio, looks awesome. Yeah, he, no he's, he's really good. I don't, why is it taking this long? Antonio Gibson uh, looked good last week with a couple of touchdowns. Start him against the Bengals. Mike Davis has struggled. I get it. But McCaffrey's probably going to be out again. Good matchup against Detroit. Damian Harris is a play. Naheem Hines is a play, although I don't know who's going to be the guy in that Colts backfield on a week-to-week basis. But – Hines looks like the best bet this week. Uh, start Justin Jefferson against the Cowboys, Deontay Johnson against the Jaguars, Christian Kirk on Thursday night in his smash spot against Seattle. Uh, we mentioned Amari Cooper. Brandon Cooks has a revenge game against the Patriots, so he's a wide receiver three flex at tight end Hayden Hurst. Austin Hooper, Dallas Goddard, Hunter Henry all starts. Sit him quarterbacks this week. Carson Wentz, Ryan Tannehill, who's had – a few kind of ad games in a row, and he's got Baltimore. There's Jared something Goff. there, too. There's, I'm telling you, there's something there. Like, we've talked a lot about this with Lamar and, like, how teams have sort of gotten a book on him. Okay. I'm yep. just telling you, like, like, there's some murmurs out there. The last few weeks, like, they're challenging Tannehill and Arthur Smith, the OC there, who's done a great job mm-hmm. in different ways, and there may be a little bit of an adjustment that's going to have to happen here. Yeah, because Tannehill's numbers have, have not have not been great lately. Uh, last week had a, had a huge stinker. Jared Goff is dead to me. I didn't like Jared Goff coming into the season, <laughs> right? I feel like he had that one big fantasy year, and he's been garbage since then. I'm sorry. I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. But if you can't give me 
18 points against Seattle. Forget it. I'm done with you. And he's got the Bucks this week on Monday night. Joe Burrow's matchup's not great against Washington. Phillip Rivers uh, also against the Packers is a fade. At running back, so do you remember, are you a fan of Seinfeld, Albert? You know what? My wife loves Seinfeld. I've never really Then your it. wife will know the episode where George Costanza went opposite, okay? So, okay. and everything went right when he did the opposite. Ronald Jones had a huge game last week. He had a 98-yard touchdown run. He went crazy. Everyone's going to be like, ooh, Ronald Jones. I think Fournette's going to be better this week. Why? I have no good analytical reason. I'm just going the opposite, okay? Because that backfield is a disaster. The Rams are really good against the run, too. Todd Gurley, you probably have to play. But as I mentioned, the Saints defense is really good at home against running backs. Daryl Henderson is a fade for me this week, too, against Tampa. Uh, Melvin Gordon, another play you probably got to play. The matchup's not great against Miami, and I don't like the game script there. Uh, could be negative for him. J.K. Dobbins also a fade at wide receiver. Jerry Judy has been really good. He's getting a lot of targets. But Xavier Howard's been playing great. And I don't know who the quarterback's going to be in Denver this week. It might be Brett Rippon. We have no idea. If Teddy Bridgewater can't go, DJ Moore is a fade for me. Corey Davis is a fade as well against the Ravens. Uh, T.Y. Hilton has been, he's disappeared. And then Marcus Valdez-Scanling has had two huge games in a row. But Alan Lazard's likely to come back this week. They took him off of injured reserve. If he's back, I'm fading MBS. And even if he's not, Colts. So that's a tough one. At tight end, uh, I'm fading Johnny Smith if I can. Trey Burton, Tyler Higby. And then Robert Tunyon, who was more Funyan to start when his last name was Tanyan. He has been an absolute disaster since he had that 33-point game when we all thought his last name was Tanyan. Hey, Robert, go back to Tanyan, and we'll start you again in fantasy. I'm fading him against the Colts. And at this point, if Taysom Hill's on the waiver wire and I can play him at tight end, I'm dropping Tanyan to pick him up. Wow. That's a great way to bring it all back to where we started right there with <laughs> with the Taysom Hill tight end event. And then, like, you know, I'm telling you guys, like, like everybody out there listening – First thing I'm going to do after I hang up hang up with Fabs here, I'm going to go check and see and make sure that the platform that I'm using doesn't have Taysom Hill listed have, as a tight yeah, end. I'm going to have to check the, that out. That's the only one I've seen. NFL doesn't have them. Yahoo doesn't have them. They only have them at quarterback. I've only seen ESPN. Okay. And I have a couple of leagues on ESPN. So, I mean, like, I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to definitely check that out. That's great advice right there. You knew you would get it. He is the original author of the Stardom Sitem column every week. He and DraftKings bring us the DFS bargains and fades. Fabs, always appreciate the help. All right, my brother. Have a good week. All right, thanks to Fabs. Thanks again to Dan. Great show this week. We're going to wrap it up the same way we always do by answering your questions in the six-pack. You guys know how this works. Every Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get... A like on Twitter, that means I hit that little heart there, and you get an answer here on the podcast, or you might get an answer on the video mailbag or even on the conventional mailbag on the website. Question number one for this week for the six-pack from Chris Cody. That's at Boston to Chicago. What does Romeo Cornell need to do to keep the head coaching job in Houston? I mean, A, he has to put together a representative final two months of the season. Like They have to respond to him. Um, the, or, the 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 players have to you know, buy into what he's selling. Doesn't mean you know they have to ha they have to go whatever five and two down the stretch. But they, he at the very least needs to show he's got a hold on that team. And then number two, the the part that's kind of out of his control is they would have to make an organizational decision that we're gonna we're gonna sort of punt on the 2021 coaching carousel and wait till 2022 and sort of slow play um, our build of the organization, our rebuild of the organization. 
I, I ultimately don't think doing that is very realistic. Um, I think you have a really hard time selling players on the idea of that. You'd be wasting a year of Deshaun Watson's prime. Um, I just think you create more problems doing that than um, you create more problems doing that than, than than you solve. And so I still think there's a new general manager, a new head coach in there, um, and a remade football operation in 2021. Question number two from Mike. That's at Meek eight five eight. Are Anthony Lynn and Tom Telesco on the hot seat? in Los Angeles. Mike, I I hate using the word hot seat, but you know, after what we've seen to this point and you know, where they are right now, um, and I really think the talent there is pretty good. Like, you know, I think Justin Herbert's got a chance to be, you know, like a, like, like, like Dan talked about, like a top of the league type of quarterback. Um, you know, Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, Joey Bosa, Derwin James, when he's healthy, I think Kenneth Murray has a chance to be pretty good. Casey Hayward, like, there are a lot of good players in that team, um, so like they, the, I, I felt like up until like last weekend that they were sort of a dark horse to make a run um, on the back half and 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 somehow sneak in as maybe the seventh seed in the AFC. Now where they are at two two and seven, I find it hard to see that happening. And I think now you have to start to look at people's contracts. That's sort of where you're at, right? Um, where like, you know, Anthony Lynn's going into his fourth, going into his, uh, going to be going into his, uh, fifth year as the head coach, if they keep him, um, and they just did a one year extension. So do you bandaid that again? Um, and then, you know, if you are going to move on from Anthony Lynn, do you let Tom Telesco hire a third or be a part of hiring a third head coach? I think these are all questions that the Chargers are going to have to answer. And it's interesting, too, because this is a critical, critical time for them. They're going to have Justin Herbert on a rookie deal for the next couple of years, which, you know, we've seen the Chiefs parlay that into a Super Bowl title. We saw the Eagles parlay that sort of situation into a Super Bowl title. We saw the Rams get to a Super Bowl in that circumstance. And so I just think it's a fascinating time for the Chargers based on the fact that now they've got their guy at quarterback. You know, I think the decision-making starts with Lynn and goes from there. And so much of that with Lynn is based on just his own contract situation. Question number three from Danny. Um, he's at bet the over 85. Bengals' biggest need in this year's draft. Danny, offensive line, offensive line, offensive line. I know that's not a sexy answer to the question. It looks like they might have something in Jonah Williams. The two Ohio State kids, you know, hopefully they can find roles for those guys, Michael Jordan and Billy Price, who they've drafted the last couple of years. But ultimately, they just have to protect Joe Burrow better than they have this year. They know it. Um, I think they've got some pretty good skill talent on hand. A.J. Green probably gone next year, but you got Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins. You've got Joe Mixon as your tailback. Like, I think you've got a good basis of skill position talent there. Um, and I, I think this offseason is all going to be about finding a better way to protect Joe Burrow. And again, just like uh, just, just, just like I was saying with the Chargers, and taking advantage of that window you're going to be in with Burrow on his rookie contract. And Burrow's got a chance, again, like I, I think just like just like Herbert, got a chance to, to be a like elite, like a top five or six quarterback in the NFL when all said and done. Question number four from Tom Marshall. That's at Red Zone Knock. Uh, is Carson Wentz suffering under the weight of not being the Eagles Super Bowl winning QB? Tom, I'm going to give you my working theory on this one, all right? My working theory on this, when it comes to these young quarterbacks, and this applies to so many of them, not just Carson Wentz. I think because coaches have become more creative and more open-minded, 
Um, we're seeing more college schematics kind of infiltrate the NFL. And what happens, I think, is that you know you get a young quarterback. You're like, okay, how can we get him rolling? How can we make him comfortable? How can we make it so like he's playable right away? And we can take advantage of him again being on that rookie contract very quickly. So they'll import some of the stuff that they were doing in college into the pros. And that stuff for a time will work. And I think we saw that with Carson Wentz. We saw it early in the career of Robert Griffin and Tim Tebow too. If you want to reach back into the – if you want to go way back, Cam Newton, the, the Panthers did some of that stuff in Carolina early on. Um, and so I think that that's, that, that be, that's sort of like be, the way the game's being coached now become like the new early phase of a young quarterback's career. And then defensive coordinators have a chance to study it, have a chance to catch up. And then comes the second adjustment. And that's really tough on young quarterbacks because that's where they really have to evolve. And so I think where that used to be the first phase, like the adjustment to the NFL used to be the first phase. Now it's almost the second phase of quarterback development where these guys have to learn how to counterpunch. These guys have to learn how to adjust and how to adapt to what's going on around them and the way that the NFL works. And I think Carson Wentz has really struggled with that. And so I think where the Eagles are right now, they've got a quarterback who's got a little bit of a confidence issue, who's pressing. Um, defensive coaches know it. They're taking advantage of it. They see a quarterback who's squeezing the ball, who's putting it in the ground too much. And, you know, I think now it's just as simple as, you know, where do you go going forward with him? I, It's a tough one, man. It really is. And I don't know um, – yeah, like I, I, maybe, maybe this is, you know, a situation where, you know, you, you see some sort of coaching change jizz um, sort of made to spur that. And that'll kind of play into, uh, you know, my fifth question for this week. That's from not who I think I am, our buddy Don Ridnour. He asks us Doug Peterson on the hot seat. And my answer to that would be probably not. Um, he's been in the playoffs annually. Um, if they don't make it this year, um, you know I, that obviously won't reflect well on him because of how bad the division is. If he can't win that division based on everything that's happening with the other three teams, I think you have to take a hard look at a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, but I do think that you know Doug might be in a position where he is again going to have to reshuffle his coaching staff. And you know, I, I I can't help but look back to losing Frank Reich and 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 uh, and John D. Filippo after the 2017 season, and wonder what sort of effect that had. They promoted Mike Groh in that situation. That didn't work out. Mike Groh was fired after last year. They've since promoted Press Taylor. They brought in Rich Gangarillo. Um, we're still not seeing progress now. To be fair, they've had a lot of injury issues. The offensive line's gotten old, gotten hurt, um, and that's been a problem. Um, but I think there's a lot of things you have to look at here. And to me, I, I like you wonder if like somebody like Matt Nagy came available after this year, if maybe they need a real offensive coordinator in there, need somebody who's got the title and who has the juice. And so, you know, I think you can tie one thing into the other, the coaching situation into the development of Carson Wentz. I think if things keep going the way that they've gone, we're going to see some major decisions need, needing to be made. And it doesn't necessarily mean like you're considering getting rid of Doug. I think it means you're probably looking at the makeup of your coaching staff and what you can do to try to make sure that Carson Wentz, who you've invested very deeply in, takes that next step. Finally, question number six for the week from Shedrick Carter. That's at Shedrick Carter too. What coaches could you see being interested in the Falcons job if Morris doesn't land it? Raheem Morris has done a great job. I believe the three and one since he took over. He deserves a lot of credit for the job that he's done. 
um, helping keep them together in a really difficult time. That locker room really does love Dan Quinn, even if they didn't respond to him the same way at the end as they had before. Um, you know, I think that that was a tough situation for any interim coach to, to, to step into. I think Raheem's done a really nice job. I think he deserves uh, consideration for the job. The one thing that I keep hearing, though, that I can't ignore is the connection between the Falcons and Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy, And it's something when you – I mean, it's early, and they haven't really – you know, like they, they've, done, they've done a lot of background work, but they're not at the point where they're making any sorts of decisions on which way they're leaning or anything like that. But it's just you hear the connection enough times, and like it becomes tough to ignore – and um, I, the one thing I would leave you guys with on that is that, you know, I think the league's been diligent about, you know, the, the idea of hiring, um, you know, minority candidates into head coaching positions, hiring minority candidates into general manager positions, but they can't do it themselves, right? Like that's up to the teams, that's up to the owners to do that, to make those moves. And I, I think the Biennemi thing has sort of become a flashpoint for the league where they know it's like, God, like, you know, no matter what the truth is behind closed doors, like this doesn't look good. And so if the league really like looks at it and says, like, we want, like, we need to find a way that to, like Eric Bianami needs to have a head coaching job coming out of this next, next, next cycle. Well, you think about that and who would be more acutely aware of that than the Falcons, their team president, the guy who's going to be helping to run this coaching search is Rich McKay, who's the co-chair of the competition committee who works closely with Troy Vincent, who's been very involved in these topics. And so if anybody is sensitive to the issues the league has had, if anybody is, you know, like acknowledge, like not has knowledge of the, what the enemy situation is sort of created for the league it's Rich McKay. And so I would just kind of keep an eye on that one. I'm not saying anything's done, but it's just a connection I keep hearing people make. So I, I would keep an eye on that. Does it mean that they like go and hire somebody from, from Kansas City, maybe like a Mike Borgonzi as the GM to go with them? I think that's certainly possible. Um, just an interesting thing. And again, like Biennemi coming in there, I think would be able to put together a really good staff. It'd be interesting to see what he did and how much of what he, you know, has done in Kansas city would carry over. I appreciate you guys coming out as always. Um, we want to make this show better as you guys have been able to notice. I've been able to tell the last couple of weeks, we've really tried to keep evolving it and we want to keep evolving it via your feedback. And what my producers keep telling me, what our podcast people keep telling me is the best way for you guys to do that, to help us out is to rate and review us on iTunes. So if you could do that for us, that would be great. Tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what we're doing not so well. Give us a five-star review, all that. Like you can do that for us. I'd be very appreciative. You can also give me your feedback on my social media channels. You guys know where to find me at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook. And remember to subscribe to all the MMQB shows, not just mine. You can listen to the MMQB podcast with Gary. You can listen to Jenny and Connor's podcast. We're all on separate feeds now. You got the MMQB feed. You got the Weekside podcast feed. You got the Albert Breer show feed. You should be subscribing to all three feeds, but you guys already knew that. And you know where you can find us too on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. We're there. Same time next week. I'll see you guys then.